everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, the fight for the Senate and the presidency is going to be fought in swing states across the country. If you are one of those people who is looking to do some traveling as you volunteer in 2020, the Seattle-based organization Common Purpose can help you do it with volunteer training and coordination. They are also very active here at home in Washington, working with state congressional races, legislative races, and more. We speak with the founder of Common Purpose, David Domke. Then, Seattle-based singer-songwriter Tay Phoenix joins us from Washington, D.C., to update us on her work with the Swarm the Senate movement, a collective of activist groups who are converging each day on the Senate and Senate office buildings to demand the removal of Donald Trump. All that, and we have our weekly call to action. That's ahead, so stay with us. Pretty much everybody listening to this show is planning on getting involved at some level with the 2020 election, canvassing, phone banking, postcard writing, and the like. Some people have even expressed interest in traveling to battleground states to volunteer on the ground, but aren't sure how or even where to begin. Allow me to introduce you to Common Purpose, a Seattle-based organization that mobilizes voters, trains young leaders, and travels with volunteers to key states across the country to help with progressive political campaigns and get out the vote efforts. David Domke is the founder of Common Purpose. He's also a professor of communications at the University of Washington, where he is on leave to do this work with Common Purpose, and we are so happy that he could join us today. David Domke, welcome. Uh, Thank you very much. So just give us a general idea of how Common Purpose got started and where the idea came from. Sure. So I've been a uh, professor who studies and teaches about American politics and media, journalism, and public opinion. Done that for 20 years. And over that course of the last, let's say, 12 years, uh, I've had some interest and opportunities to work on political campaigns have never uh, been able to do that in any substantial way because of my position at a state university like the UW. Um, but I knew in 2016 that however that election, presidential election came out, that I was really interested in, in trying instead starting a new kind of phase of my professional life of doing work on the ground with civic organizations who are actually kind of fighting for democracy. Um, so with some folks, we started talking about like, what could that look like? What would that kind of next thing look like? And uh, coming out of 2016 and the results there, we spent a good chunk of 2017 uh, thinking about things and talking and looking at organizations around the country that were, you know, so many of them, including Indivisible, that were starting to mobilize after the election of 2016. And we came up with this idea that what if we took uh, kind of an overabundance of progressive energy and voices that you find in certain cities in this country and gave them an opportunity to travel to places where they could uh, do on the ground work led by community organizations to register voters and to get them out to vote. Uh, and we knew there were going to be you know, many steps and it wasn't a perfect system, but we wanted to create this on-ramp uh, for people to do this. And we started in Seattle with the idea in late 2017, had our first kind of public workshop in 20, early 2018. And, uh, you know, it's just really grown from there. It's, it's, it's really an interest of people. And people want to go to an Ohio, to a Wisconsin, to a Pennsylvania, to a Florida. And, it, you know, it takes resources, but we've also been fortunate to have some people make donations so that we can make this open to a lot of people. Well, that's great. Yeah, I was going to ask you how a program like yours gets funded. So there you go. Um, you know, I'll just mention, since you note that you draw volunteers largely from uh, cities, Seattle in particular, where I live in the 8th District, we saw a ton of people come out in 2018 from Seattle and help to flip the seat for Kim Schreier. So we know there's a, a lot of energy to tap. Uh, I know you were very active in the 2018 election um, in a lot of places. Can you give us a sense of what you did, where you went, and uh, the impact that you had? Sure. Oh, I think thanks for asking. Uh, we do work locally in Washington State because, you know, a good chunk of our volunteers can't or don't want to travel. So we worked in the eighth and we had hundreds of people contribute to kind of getting out the vote for Kim Schreier. Um, and then we worked around the state also in the third and the eighth, uh, third and the fifth congressional districts and didn't have the outcomes that they were hoping we were hoping for there. But nonetheless, registered a lot of people to vote, which is a good long term thing around the country. We worked in a total of 12 states, including Washington State. A couple of the highlights there are uh, in Arizona, 
We helped to elect Kirsten Sinema, the first Democratic senator there in decades. We uh, helped to flip a couple uh, U.S. House seats there. In Nevada, just north of that, we helped to support and elect Jackie Rosen to flip a Senate seat, to elect the first Democratic governor in decades there, to pass automatic voter registration on the state ballot, to flip a U.S. House seat, and to also uh, elect the first female majority state legislature in U.S. history. In Florida, we did not get the outcomes we were looking for in the governor's race or in the U.S. Senate race, right. but we did help to pass Amendment 4, which was really one of our highlights. It restored voting rights to formerly incarcerated people in Florida. The, the legislation has since been chipped away at by yeah. the Republican legislature in really terrible ways. But nonetheless, hundreds, you know, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of people gained the right to vote. And that's the right long term trajectory. We worked in Pennsylvania and had success there in Michigan. We got a credible voter reform slate of initiatives passed and helped to flip a couple of House seats. We were in Wisconsin where we helped to support Tony Evers uh, knocking off Scott Walker. We were in Minnesota where we flipped a House seat. Um, you know, we were in Ohio where a couple of state Supreme Court seats uh, moved towards progressives. So these are just some of the areas that we worked in in 2018. And we didn't have success in all of them, but we're part of the bigger, longer, you know, arc and struggle of all of this. And we know that we're not always going to win. So we, we keep kind of investing in those key places, knowing that there is a payoff that's long term, even if not short term. Yeah, I mean, just it's, it's invigorating just hearing you kind of rattle off the list of places that you went and the impact <laughs> that you had. I'm serious. And, you know, I know that you said that in some places you came up short. But uh, the fact that you were able to kind of hit the ground running in such a profound way is so impressive. I know that you mobilized with some 400 volunteers from Washington. You knocked on some 58,000 doors. I mean, this is just really impressive. Uh, So let's shift over and talk about 2020. Give us a sense of where you're going to be going, where, where you've been, what you're going to be doing in 2020 with the election. Yeah, sure. We uh, so our methodology is that we have these team leads who live in Washington state, mostly, some of them do live around the country, but live in Washington state who are shepherds essentially, or Sherpas who take volunteers from the Seattle area. Although again, around the country, people are starting to fly in to join us. And they, these leaders build partner relationships with organizations in each of these key states who are the partner organizations also work in the key kind of congressional districts in those states. So we take people and we go to these places and we guide them along. People pay their ways, but the organizations are thrilled to have us come and work with them. Our kind of a terminology is their boots, our ground. I'm sorry, their ground, our boots. Well, yeah, let me ask you about that specifically, because I think a lot of times when we think about traveling to other states to go and do work there, there is this worry that we may be perceived as carpetbaggers uh, by, sure. you know, local voters yep. and that it may wind up having a cumulative negative effect. And so when you're working with these organizations, you specifically address that issue, right? Yeah, that's core to, to, to how we do this. You know, we, we're inspired by the work of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the 1960s. And their model in the, around the civil rights and voting rights movement was they would work with locals in communities. They would build connections with them and partner with them because those folks were there before. They'll be there afterwards. They know best. And then they would, the folks would come in from around the country to register voters, but always under the banner and the umbrella of those local orgs. That's what we do. Um, and so we, we, we find organizations, reach out to them. They're sometimes skeptical of us, rightfully so. And we build a connection with them. And our commitment to them is that we will follow their lead. We will do it how they want to do it. We will metaphorically, but sometimes literally, take off our T-shirts from Seattle and put on their T-shirts nice. uh, and go out, go out door to door for them on their terms. And, you know, it is a common question. Uh, by people, you know, hey, you, what's it like for people from Seattle to show up in Louisville, Kentucky, or in Richmond, Virginia, um, or in Tampa, Florida? Aren't you kind of seen as these outsiders and your, doesn't your, 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 your voices and everything give you away? Um, Actually, we almost never hear that from people that we talk to, people we register or the people we go door to door with. Because A, when we show up at their door, we are I'm David. Hi, I'm working with local organization X. 
Okay. So we are with them. That's our identity when we're there. And the body of work that we're doing is one that is profoundly small D democratic. And people just appreciate that you care enough to come to knock on their door, whether you're from down the street or you're from across the country. So almost always, if people do find out where we're from, they express uh, a wonder that Mm. you came all this way to Charlotte, to Richmond, to Portland, Maine, to help register. Wow, you know, I think I probably should vote or I should at least think, care more about this. So the reality is that is that we don't get perceived that way for, because of some things we do, but also because of the nature of the work. Well, that's really encouraging. And I think people listening right now who are considering doing some traveling uh, to other states uh, are, I'm sure, finding that uh, very encouraging as well. So I know that you your website says that you're going to be focusing on six presidential states, 14 Senate races, over 20 House races, 11 legislative races. And I'll just <laughs> ask you, well, first of all, that's a hell of a lot. But uh, how do you select which races, which candidates uh, that you're going to be working on behalf of? Sure. Well, you're, 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 we could talk all day long here, stuff, because I, this, <laughs> this is stuff that I'm really interested in. And it, it, is, it happens to be the body of work that I contribute to Common Purpose right. is the, stra- the strategy behind the states. Um, so we use four criteria to select our states. The first is, is it a key presidential election state? When you look at the electoral college, is it a key presidential election state? There you, you, you know, quickly pick up a Pennsylvania, a Michigan, a Wisconsin, an Arizona, a Florida. Second, is it a key U.S. Senate race in 2020? There you add a Maine, an Arizona, a Colorado, uh, a Kansas, a Iowa, maybe even a Kentucky in a long shot kind of circumstance, right? Third, are there uh, important U.S. House elected officials already elected or ones that are running for office who really kind of represent where this country's going in, in it or hopefully going in a progressive sense. So there, there we've worked on behalf of like a Lucy McBath in Atlanta uh, who has run on a gun safety measure and has been incredibly important in Congress or an Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan who wrote the uh, headed up the war powers resolution that, that the house passed. So these are folks that we worked for in 2018 but are also invested in terms of long-term. That's our third characteristic. And our fourth criteria are important state-level races. These are House races or Senate races at the state level if there's the potential of potentially uh, either solidifying or transforming the composition of a legislature. In 2020, there's a couple really important races in uh, Arizona, in Minnesota, in Pennsylvania that could really make a difference for redistricting decisions that'll get made after 2020. But there's also at the state level important Supreme Court races. And this has been something that progressives have kind of woken up to in the last decade, uh, which is how important state Supreme Court decisions are for gerrymandering, yeah. for in general around voter identification laws. Um, and so we, we will work in an Ohio and in Iowa and in Michigan and in North Carolina, which all have important state Supreme Court races in 2020. Those four criteria are our four that we look at. And we pretty much every state that we select hits at least two of those. And some of them hit all of them. Michigan is, is, is all four. Iowa is all four. Arizona is all four. And so we have our biggest teams going to those kinds of places. But then, like, it's hard to say, like, it's Maine. Maine is not a crucial presidential state, but it's absolutely vital if the Democrats want to win the U.S. Senate. Absolutely. Yeah. And the road to a uh, majority for Democrats in the Senate runs directly through Maine uh, with uh, yep. Susan Collins. I want to ask just about a couple of states that I have heard people sure. talking about wanting to travel to. The first is Wisconsin. I think people are seeing that as absolutely a crucial battleground state, if not the bellwether state in the 2020 election. And we haven't gotten into too many specifics about what you do when you're on the ground. So sure. what specifically will you be doing in a state like Wisconsin? You, you got it. We'll do what we've done in 2018 and 2019 already in Wisconsin, is we have partner orgs there. We have uh, an interfaith group that we work with out of Racine, uh, who does voter registration and voter uh, uh, mobilization. And then we work directly with the state Democrats in Wisconsin as well. And so does that mean uh, canvassing primarily? 
we, we do two different things, uh, Stefan. We do voter registration, and that, is, that occurs in our what we call our wave one of each year. So that's usually in late spring or early summer. We go and do voter registration, and that's almost always with a 501c3 or a c4 organization. Then in the fall, we come back in the six-week window, uh, somewhere in the six-week window between middle of September and the beginning of uh, and through election day, and we do get out the vote then, and we work almost entirely with C4 organizations or directly with candidate campaigns or state parties. And so in each case, we are out on the, out in the, the, the community, uh, either knocking on doors or uh, going to public spaces, a mall, a laundromat, um, a very highly trafficked festival, and we are registering voters either in the spring or we are mobilizing and encouraging them to vote in the fall. Those are two things we do, and they're not complicated things. And so because we set the bar pretty low, actually, in what we're trying to do. We just want to give people a chance to do this. And so we show up and our partner orgs say, this is our method. We're going to these neighborhoods. This is our script. This is what you're going to do. And we want you to go to these doors. Here's the addresses we want you to go to. Or we want you to go to this festival and just wander around and talk to people all day. And we just take our marching orders from them when we go. So specifically for Wisconsin, we will work in Milwaukee. Milwaukee is where uh, the election will be won or lost in the state of Wisconsin. Um, you have hundreds of thousands of voters there, of which about uh, over almost 100,000 of them voted in 2012, didn't vote in 2016. Right. That's partly because of interest in the candidates, but it's also because of the voter suppression laws that are very difficult in Wisconsin, in which we come on the ground and work with partner orgs to help overcome. This all sounds tremendous, and it also sounds in many ways very similar to the work that I think a lot of listeners to this show will already be familiar with. I mean, you're you're talking about the sorts of, you know, get out the vote efforts and canvassing that I think people are, you know, excited to do this year. And so the prospect of being able to go to a different state and essentially be given, as you say, the marching orders to do that there, uh, I think, is a very tantalizing prospect to a lot of people. I will just ask, uh, you've kind of laid out what you do, but I will ask about Kentucky because I know people are very interested in going there, particularly after uh, Senate Leader McConnell's moves on the impeachment trial. When will you be going specifically (laughs) to Kentucky? Sure. So uh, one thing I haven't mentioned that I want to mention in the lead up to my answer is that we kind of our mojo that we use this term mojo for us is that we go in teams and at the heart of our teams is a a sense of community that we build among our folks. So just as a point of clarification for anybody who's listening, if you want to join up with Common Purpose, you can sign up at our website, cpnow.org, under the National Fieldwork site and uh, tab, and you can click on a state and indicate your interest. It doesn't mean you're going to go for sure, but it indicates your interest. But if you do that, then you are committing to going as a team. And we go, and it's really important for us. We don't just show up without a connection. So in Kentucky, uh, we wanted to go. We had a number of our folks. Uh, who want to beat Mitch McConnell in 2020. Sure. Okay, we don't need to explain why. There's there's, <laughs> ma- there's many yeah. reasons why. Yeah. Um, and so we reached out to folks in Kentucky, as well as a couple strategists here in Seattle who were doing work uh, in Kentucky politics to get their take on the viability of beating Mitch McConnell. Like this is, how much of a long shot is this? And everybody said, it's a long shot. There's no question. Um, and then the Kentucky folks, the partner orgs, and we there we were talking to Planned Parenthood as well as the Kentucky Dems. They said, if you want to win in 2020, we have to win the governor's race in 2019 because that'll build momentum. It'll give us a sense of possibility. And if we get blown out in the governor's race in 2019, then really there's no point to coming in 2020 because – we got a chance against this horrible Republican governor, Matt Bevin, right. uh, in, in 2019. So we so we were told by our partner orgs, we need you in 2019 if you want to come in 2020. Do not come <laughs> in 2020 without doing the work ahead of time. Okay, so we heard that, and we watched the race, and Bevin was – it was got neck and neck with Andy Bashir. So we showed up in 2019, the last weekend before the election, under the banner of the Kentucky Democrats, and you know, knocked on 3,700 doors in Louisville, and uh, Bevin loses or Bashir wins by 5,100 ele- votes. So we feel like, hey, we, we contributed to this, right? Absolutely, yeah. So now – 
Uh, I pulled back from that after that election. I was fortunate enough to lead that team. I'm really honored and thrilled to have been there as part of that work. Oh, that's very exciting. But I pull- yeah, it is. It's, it's like one of the highlights of my professional life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I came back and because I'm a leader in this organization, I want to keep people's expectations in check. Right. So I said, hey, I don't know if we're going to go in, in, in 2020. We got to really just kind of wait and see how this goes with McConnell and with impeachment and everything. And our membership said, no way in hell are we like pulling back. We want to go. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, I'm hearing exactly the same thing, man. Uh, so we we will have a, a team. Go, we do have a team. We have a team lead going to Kentucky. And we decided that Kentucky, Kansas, Alaska, uh, these are all long shot states for the Dems to win. But they are the kind of states where the Republicans should at least have to play defense. OK, and so at a minimum, we're going to Kentucky because of the symbolism of McConnell and the fact that the the Republicans should have to defend it now. If things were to break right, you got a, we got a shot because McConnell is, by some measures, the most unpopular senator in the country. Yeah, he's running neck and neck with Susan Collins right now, I believe. Yeah, well, when those those recent ratings came out by Morning Consult, we looked at them all and, and you know, like five of the top six most unpopular are candidates that we're trying to beat. So we were pretty happy to see that. Yeah, for sure. So I just have to, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I hear listeners going, wait, 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 there's a lot of work to be done here in Washington in 2020 also. So just give us a sense of the kind of work that Common Purpose is going to be doing here at home in 2020. Yeah, so we we will uh, be mobilizing, again, our actions are registering voters and then getting out the vote. We will do those in the third congressional district for sure. We believe that Carolyn Long has a really good chance in a presidential election year against Jamie Herrera Butler. We, we believe that too. Yeah, so absolutely, oh, sure. good, good news. Absolutely. Uh, we will engage in the eighth if it appears that Kim Schreier is, if it's gonna be a closely contested election. We don't know yet, no. okay? Yeah. We, will, we will wait to see on the eighth. And that those are our committed points of engagement uh, in terms of voter registration and voter mobilization in the state. It's possible we would engage in the 10th with the open congressional seat there as well, uh, but not probably at this time. So locally, those are our places. You know, the fifth is this this kind of like uh, holy grail out there that is, you know, tantalizing, but is is really tough to kind of commit resources there, depend unless the environment for Republicans got really badly, got really bad. So the third, for sure, the eighth possible. Well, that kind of lines up with, I think, most people's expectations. And it's good to hear that Common Purpose is getting involved at that level. I will just ask you very briefly, I know that you uh, offer something called primary state tours. Uh, <laughs> there are two states that you're doing this year, Iowa and South Carolina. I believe it's too late to register for Iowa, but there are still slots available for South Carolina. So just very briefly, for people who are signing up for this, what will they experience? Sure. There's about 20 people signed up for each of these. And uh, the one that's still open, the South Carolina trip, will leave February 23rd and return the 29th, which is the day of the primary for the Democrats. And I have had the privilege to travel to some of these early states uh, in the presidential campaigns, both on the Democratic primary side and the Republican primary side. And South Carolina is the fourth state, and no one has gone on to become president of the United States uh, since 1980 without winning their respective South Carolina primary. So it's extre- wow. extremely important. It, be, it has to do with the, the composition of the Republicans that are in the state and the composition of the Democrats. And on the Democratic side, you have a very large uh, African-American population, which is very important to the party nationally, as well as a, a really traditional working class white population. So you got to be able to win those and win that state and then if you got that, you got a chance to win nationally. What we do is we go and we pay attention to the candidates, uh, all the candidates who are campaigning there. All of their events are, are public information. And so we spend five days going to different candidate events. You often can meet these candidates. They'll be in restaurants and diners. They'll be in gymnasiums. Sometimes they'll do larger rallies. Uh, you'll, you'll see the national media everywhere uh, because they're descending like in droves. So we go and we, we, we hunker down in Columbia, which is in the center of state, and then we travel around the state each day. And we usually see a couple candidates each day um, in their kind of space as well as you experience the kind of Southern uh, history and the energy 
of South Carolina because they embrace this experience. So it's it's unlike anything that people experience in the state of Washington because we these candidates come to the early states for sure. you know a total of months and they come here for a total of maybe half a day. Right, exactly. Yeah, we get short shrift. Uh, and even though our primary has moved up, it, it really hasn't brought the candidates here in any meaningful way. So it's a very exciting opportunity, and I will have information for people uh, to check out that at indivisiblepodcast.org. We are running short on time, and so I'm just going to uh, close by asking a very important question, and that is uh, a fun fact on your website says that you can eat two dozen chocolate chip cookies <laughs> in one sitting. Uh, any particular brand? Uh you know, Nestle, I do like Nestle Toll House. Um, <laughs> I, Mrs. Fields is solid as well. Yeah. Um, there are a bunch of coffee places around town that are spectacular. I I, I just have a weak spot. I And, and I also have like this iron stomach. So I can like well, Yeah, handle. I was going to say, have you ever yeah. timed yourself? Have you thought about getting into the competitive <laughs> circuit like, you know, the guys in Coney Island eating the hot dogs? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I I certainly look at them and what they do with hot dogs and dream about that with cookies. But <laughs> but but those are true true competitors. I I don't have like that quite that that insanity. Right. Uh, before I let you go, I will tell people who are interested that there is a workshop coming up. Yeah. It is an intro to common purpose workshop, and it is on February eighth. I will have information for that at indivisiblepodcast.org. Uh, honestly, I could talk about this all day, but I know you have to go, so I will let you. David Domkey is the founder of Common Purpose. David Domkey, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. You are hearing Seattle singer-songwriter Tay Phoenix singing in the Senate's Russell Rotunda in Washington, D.C., just moments before she was arrested by Capitol Police. Tay is in D.C. right now as part of a collective movement to push the Senate to convict and remove Trump, and she is on the line with us right now. Hello, Tay. How are you? Hi, Stefan. Uh, I'm I'm tired, but I'm well. I'm delighted to be here. I'm sure that you're tired, and maybe more to the point, where are you right now? I am on the fourth floor of the Senate Dirksen office building. I'm just passing Senator Lamar Alexander's office from the great state of Tennessee. Yeah, but Senator Alexander is one of the GOP senators who is seen as being on the fence and potentially gettable around issues surrounding the impeachment proceedings. Was there an action at his office regarding that? Not at this time. There have been. Um, I've been. I've been in that office several times, speaking to staffers. But um, at this, I just we just came from Senator Collins's office uh, of Maine. She's also on this floor, um, and uh, and I just peeled off from the group. They're they're heading on to other senators' offices, and then I will um, I'll be joining them when I get off the phone with you. What was the uh, reaction slash mood like at Senator Collins' office when you were there? I mean, I think her staffers, it's, it's hard to say. They, they have pretty good poker faces, to be honest. Um, but, you know, we were there to deliver letters from Mainers. We had Mainers in our group. We had registered Republicans who live in Maine in our group um, there to, you know, speak to their concerns about the way that this trial is being conducted and, um, and the need for witnesses and evidence. Um, that's been our primary message this week is that, you know, the, the, um, there's so much has come to light in the last month since impeachment passed the House that it's important for us to be, you know, reviewing that information um, as well as the information that was not revealed to the House during their investigations because of the stonewalling of the White House. So that's largely, I think, what you have been focusing on uh, over the last few days. I know that you have actually gotten a chance to talk with Senator Lisa Murkowski. You mentioned that in a Facebook talk. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell us what you talked about with Senator Murkowski. Well, so let me kind of set the scene for you. I was wandering uh, through the building, much as I'm doing right now, um, on my own, uh, and I kind of got off an elevator and um, and she was kind of standing there by the subway talking to a couple of Capitol Police. Um, and she was not accompanied and she wasn't in a hurry. And I, put my, and I thought originally, okay, I'll get in her face with my phone and ask her a bunch of really direct questions. And 
And then I thought, you know, no, I'm going to put my phone away. And I did. And I just approached her. I said, ma'am, I'd really love to talk with you. Nothing on my sleeve. Like, I just want to kind of hear your point of view. And I asked her what her, what her experience was like of this and what her vantage point was. And, you know, she gave me a lot of the Republican talking points. Um, She did give me some insight into, uh, into what, um, what kind of their experience of, you know, saying, okay, there's an atmosphere of bad faith. Um, and you know, that was because, uh, you know, Pelosi rushed the articles through and then helped them. And that, that kind of gave an impression of bad faith. And, mm. you know, obviously I don't agree with that. I, yeah. I can understand why it might've landed that way to some people, but it's like, come on. I mean, there's, <laughs> the atmosphere of bad faith predates that and, and is not uh, wholly a democratic creation. Well, what did she um, say specifically about what the mood is like or really what the mindset yeah. is like? What sort of insight was she able to give you in terms of where she thinks her fellow Republican senators are right now? So she did say, and this is more or less a direct quote, that Leader McConnell is struggling to keep the frogs in the wheelbarrow, is the way that she put it. <laughs> but she also said, you know, Leader McConnell sees acquittal as an inevitability. And so what he's trying to do is is sort of, you know, hold his his caucus together on all of this such that that you know that an acquittal will be fast that they'll get it over before the state of the union was sort of the implication and that they'll you know sort of move on to other business and and uh you know that that's to my mind that's a cover-up right um that's not a fair trial now she did say she wanted to hear from bolton she did say that there were you know, there were there was evidence and there were witnesses that she did want to hear from. And so it may be that once we get to to the part of the trial after all of the uh, statements have been made where, you know, we may see some Republicans calling for or agreeing on certain evidence and witnesses to be heard. Um, obviously, I think that's not McConnell's preference. I think McConnell just really wants to hold his caucus together and get this over with, um, you know, very much in Trump's pocket. So we'll see. We'll see how it all how it all cracks out. I'm, you know, I, I'm sorry. There's so much um, noise on the line. There's, no, you know, no, it's okay. it's totally fine and and totally understandable. I mean, you're in a in a very busy and uh, rather important place right now. And, you know, I'll just ask you generally um, about the experiences that you're having. You have been hashtagging a lot of your tweets with hashtag swarm the Senate. And so Mm -hmm. what can you tell us about the swarm, the Senate movement uh, and what the people who have been participating in that are doing? Well, it's a it's a coalition, a number of different groups and individuals from around the country that have come together with the aim of, you know, sort of engaging with senators and engaging in protests. Um, we've, we've done some civil disobedience. Um, we've done some banner drops. We've, you know, been visiting senators' offices, dropping off letters from constituents, um, you know, standing out in front of the Capitol with signs, like just doing everything that we can tactically to keep as many eyeballs on this situation as we can because, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant. And that's what they and say. to the degree that we can create that visibility and, and sort of pierce the veil that has been created around this, um, the better. Yeah. And I know that the movement started on January 6th demanding Trump's removal. And you've been uh, people who are there have been occupying the Hart Senate building. Uh, and you mentioned that it's a part of a large coalition of groups, and that includes groups like Women's March, Rise and Resist by the People, um, and then two mm-hmm. groups that this podcast is affiliated with, of course, Indivisible, and then also Demcast USA. Um, I will just ask you generally about the types of protests that we've been seeing. I think people are very curious about what the the stated rules are around what you can and cannot do. Say, for example, in a place like the Hart Senate <laughs> Building, like what what are the what are they telling you when you go in there that you can do this but you can't do that? It changes every day oh, of boy. the week. It changes <laughs> moment to moment depending mm. on whatever they want to make against the rules or not against the rules. It's profoundly frustrating. Um, and, uh, you know, one, one thing that I would love to see uh, happen um, once we are in a, a better place is for there to be a clear, consistent, and uh, not alterable set of rules about what is and is not allowed insofar as protest inside of the buildings is concerned. Well, I'll ask you this. How many people are turning out each day? And is that number growing? Yes, the number is growing. It's growing slowly. 
Uh, I'd say there's about 50 people in the swarm today. You know, it varies kind of over time as people, you know, head phase in and out. But I'd say there's about 50 people. Um, you know, that's up from, you know, 25 or 30 last week. And So the numbers are growing. Yeah, the numbers are growing. They're not growing nearly as fast or as large as I would hope that they would. I think a lot of people are very focused on the election, um, which I understand. But I see this as part of our electoral strategy. Being here needs to be part of what we're doing. Well, unpack that a little bit, because you mentioned in Mm -hmm. your Facebook talk that you felt that the protests that you took part in around the Kavanaugh hearings led to the blue wave. That's I I really believe that. I mean, I think there were a lot of factors that led to it. I don't think it's like a one-to-one correlation. But I certainly believe that uh, that there was a, a final push of activated energy um, around get out the vote, around text banking, like all of the, the things that happened in that last period of time were fueled by people seeing just how much contempt Republicans have for women and that that was just so readily apparent. Yeah. In, you know, and for survivors generally, because uh, not all survivors are women, but that that was, uh, you know, so, so apparent in, you know, and, and it made a lot of, uh, of people really angry. And I think it created uh, the conditions under which there was a lot of activated energy. Well, we certainly know that uh, women played a huge role in the blue wave, and we also know that uh, the House elected a record number of women uh, that year. So mm-hmm. I, I'm inclined to say that there is a direct correlation, as you're suggesting. Yeah. yeah, and I think in the same way that that's the case, right? Demonstrating to and and you know one of the, one of the things I was I was talking earlier today um, with a friend of mine about is you know it's a lot easier to have your heart open and bleeding for an individual like Dr. Blasey Ford and for women who have been and people who have been sexually assaulted and raped. It is harder because it's an idea to have a a broken, open heart for the Constitution and for the democracy that we are losing. Um, And I think that a lot of people don't see how this relates to their everyday lives in the same way that, that the Kavanaugh fight did. And I think that's part of that's another part of the explanation for why we're not seeing the same numbers as we did during Kavanaugh. Um, but what I will say is that I think it is our job as the people who are here to help our fellow Americans connect those dots. Because the way that I see it is that the, the ability of this elite, you know, wealthy, powerful man, President Trump, to get away with total impunity to get away with obstruction of Congress and abuse of power is indeed, you know, a huge problem for average Americans because average Americans, if they did one 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 hundredth of what Donald Trump has done, our justice system would break them over the coals, especially if they're poor, especially if they're people of color, the sort of that differential, that applies. That is really crucial. And we need to be holding our leaders accountable because we would be held accountable under the same circumstances. Completely agreed. And uh, I just love the way that you put all of that. Thank you for uh, connecting the dots on that. I want to ask you sure. about your arrest. Uh, and I will just ask okay. you by uh, starting was this something that you had intended? I mean, I suspect that it was made known to you that if you were to, say, do something as disruptive as play guitar in the middle of the rotunda, that there would be consequences. So were you uh, aware of the fact that you were probably going to get arrested? Did you intend to get arrested? Yes. And so what specifically were you charged with? Uh, I believe the charge was incommoding, which is a, you know, a technical term for causing a, a ruckus or a disruption in the building. And when they arrested you, uh, because your video ends you know, right before the arrest happens, what was the process like? I, I know they took your guitar, and then, and then what happened? Um, well, they cuffed me. Uh, they took me to the police station. They took a statement from me. They uh, held me for a while while they did paperwork and processed my ID. And then they um, told me I was post and forfeit eligible, which means that you can 
um, post $50 bail, forfeit the bail, and the case is closed. And so I did that, and then they let me go. Is that pretty standard operating procedure for getting arrested at a protest in D.C.? Uh, if you do it on Capitol property, yes. I've been arrested four times on Capitol property, obviously three during Kavanaugh and then one this past week. And yeah, each, each time it's been posted for eligible. This time around, there was a solid chance that I would need to spend the night in jail because they, once you're on your fourth arrest, they consider you what's called a frequent flyer, mm. um, which means that they tend to throw the book at you a little harder. But so I was prepared for that, uh, but they chose not to hold me. You can answer this question or not, considering if you want to uh, transmit this ahead of time, but are you planning on putting yourself in a position where you can get arrested again in the future? I haven't ruled it out. Okay. Well, I I will just ask you in closing, uh, and you had some calls to action uh, around this in your Facebook talk. What would you like to see listeners to the program do? Let's say you can get to D.C. What would you like to see people do? Uh, if you can come to D.C., I want you to email me at Tay, T-A-E, Phoenix, like the bird, like the firebird, you know, at gmail.com. And I will try to hook you up with housing. I will get you looped in with the swarm. I would be completely delighted to have you. Um, if, you know, if you can't make it to D.C., what I want you to do is uh, – reach out to buy the people, go look at their website. Um, actually, if you go to their Twitter, which is by underscore the underscore PPL, so twitter.com slash by underscore the underscore PPL, um, they have a link there on their bio uh, that will take you to a place where you can find out if there's a protest scheduled in your area or, or actually, you know, start to organize one yourself and they'll provide resources and support. Um, but, you know, just kind of get ready to have some local hubbub around this. Um, and if you, um, you know, and then just, just make some phone calls, right? Pick up the phone, uh, call your senators, call senators from, you know, call Collins, call Alexander, call Romney, call Murkowski, like, you know, call Ernst. Uh, she's another one from Iowa. Um, and, and just let them know that you're watching, that this is a cover up and that, you know, the world is watching and that what happens here. Uh, may well determine the future of our democracy and our ability to have a democracy versus to have, you know, a king. They may as well, as uh, Amy Klobuchar put it, uh, you know, give give Trump a crown and a scepter if they acquit him on this. Well, yeah, and uh, it's uh, it really is, uh, as I like to say, an all-hands-on-deck moment. Uh, and I will just say for listeners that I will include your email as well as the Twitter address that you mentioned, the By the People Twitter address, in the show notes at indivisiblepodcast.org. But, Tay, I just want to thank you for a couple of things. First of all, thank you for going and uh, doing everything that you're doing there. Uh, and also just thank you for being such uh, an inspiration uh, for those of us back home. You're, you're doing really invaluable work. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's, um, it's my pleasure and it's my honor. And um, I'm just sending all my love to all your listeners. I will also mention that if you would like to help Tay with some of her expenses while she's in D.C. and what she is doing absolutely requires resources, her PayPal account is tsv02001 at gmail.com and her Venmo is at tae. T-A-E-T-V-K. I will also have that info at indivisiblepodcast.org. It is time for this week's calls to action, and we will absolutely get to the big push around impeachment. But uh, first, a couple of quick orders of business. First, for those of you in the 9th Congressional District, Congressman Adam Smith is going to be holding a town hall this Saturday, the 25th. And moderating that town hall will be Seattle Indivisible President Tina Eck, who joins us now. Hello, Tina. So as we know, Congressman Smith chairs the Armed Services Committee, and Seattle Indivisible has been working with his staff on the 2020 National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA. This is what authorizes how much Congress can appropriate to the defense budget, and it also sets policies under which the money gets spent. And I think in light of Trump's recent actions with Iran, this is a pretty salient issue. You are asking that Smith not support an NDAA that doesn't include Four specific provisions. What are they? Well, one, we didn't want any authorization of military forces 
stemming from the post-9-11 era. So right after 9-11, Congress passed these really overly broad permissions to use our military to go after terrorism. Right. They're outdated, and we want them repealed, and we want Congress to take back its authority to actually approve each war. And so that would basically be the repealing of the AUMF, the Authorization for Use of Military Force. Absolutely, yes. The second one we we wanted in there was we wanted to prohibit the executive from ever taking funds from military construction projects and diverting them to the southern border wall. Right. The third one was we want a repeal of the military transgender ban. We think that ban is just ridiculous, and the proposal was to do it as an anti-discrimination requirement that would just military-wide prevent any discrimination based on sex, gender, race, ethnicity. The House passed that. Okay. And the fourth one is we want to stop all U.S. involvement in the war in Yemen, including giving the weapons and bombs that we're supplying to Saudi Arabia that they're using against the civilian population. Right. And as we've seen in Iran, uh, this is the sort of proxy war. Well, first of all, in Yemen, it's a terrible humanitarian crisis, but also this is the sort of proxy war that the United States absolutely shouldn't be involved in. Um, And all of these, so we're clear, were taken out of the bill that Smith negotiated with the GOP Senate, correct? That's right. So what are you asking people who are attending the town hall to do specifically with these four issues? So we were really disappointed that Adam Smith agreed to take these out of the NDAA for last year. He is just about to start negotiating the NDAA for this year. And we want people to come to the town hall and tell them how important it is to keep these provisions in the negotiation bill this year. All right, tremendous. So I'll just tick those off one more time. And I will have this information for people at indivisiblepodcast.org. But that uh, the things that we want uh, the NDA to include are no use of funds for border wall, no involvement with uh, by the United States in Yemen, overturn the transgender ban, and repeal the AUMF. So I have mentioned that this town hall is going to be on Saturday the 25th. Uh, At what time and what's the address? It's this Saturday, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Teamsters Hall in Tukwila, which is at 14675 Interurban Avenue South, Tukwila. And we really, really want people to just come and express to their representative exactly what it is they want the military to be used for and what they don't want it to be used for. Well, that is what representative government is all about, right? Right. Well, Tina Eck, thank you so much as always. Thanks for everything that you do, and uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Stefan. So another quick item. Back in 2009, the state legislature passed a law banning the operation of pet breeding facilities known as puppy mills. These have been responsible for just gruesome and inhumane conditions for the animals. But despite the ban, there are still a number of retail pet stores in the state that continue to sell animals that come from these facilities. And so there is currently a bill under consideration in the state house, the Humane Pet Sales Bill, HB 2344, that would prohibit retail pet stores in the state from selling cats and dogs. This bill came about because of the advocacy of two Bellevue High School students, Ava Finn and Novia Liu, and they are stressing that it would not infringe on reputable pet breeders in the state, and also it wouldn't prevent animal rescue organizations from partnering with pet stores to help dogs and cats get adopted. The bill is going to be heard by the Consumer Protection and Business Committee in the House on January 31st, so let them hear from you. To find out if your representative is a member on that committee, go to ledge.wa.gov or you can contact committee chair Steve Kirby. Let them know that you want them to move HB 2344 out of committee for a full vote in the House. And so, turning to the big story of the week, which of course is the impeachment trial in the Senate. I know that this is a rough thing for us to watch for obvious reasons. It certainly has been for me. Mitch McConnell has done his level best to rush this thing through without any witnesses or documents. Uh, He actually tried to get the entire thing dismissed, but he did not have the votes for that. And then he also tried to limit the whole thing to two days, and he didn't have the votes for that, so he had to extend it to three. And to my thinking, this has groups like Indivisible's fingerprints all over 
over it, right? Because Mitch McConnell never does anything out of an obligation to ethics and fair play. Mitch McConnell only gives in when he has to, which means that there are likely certain GOP senators like the ones who Tay mentioned who are facing some very tough races in November, and they are not feeling good about this at all, and they are letting McConnell know. Why are they not feeling good, you might ask? Well, in part because of a recent CNN poll that showed that 69% of Americans want the Senate trial to hear from new witnesses, and 51% say they want the Senate to remove Trump. Another reason is that people like us in states with vulnerable senators keep calling and calling and calling. I mean, these senators know what their phone tally sheets look like at the end of every day, and it is probably very similar to the CNN polling. This could really be political suicide for the GOP. McConnell knows it, but I don't think he has any choice at this point. He has decided to push in all of his chips on Trump and just hope for the best. And it is now our job to make sure that he lives to regret that bet. So two things. First, keep calling our senators and thank them for standing fast against McConnell. And maybe also ask them to check in on their colleagues, their fellow Dems who may be feeling the heat like Joe Manchin, Doug Jones, Kirsten Cinema. Also, do talk to people that you know in states with vulnerable or fence-sitting GOP senators. If you know people in Colorado, North Carolina, Arizona, even Texas, if you know people whose senators Mitt Romney, Jody Ernst, or Lisa Murkowski, or especially in Maine with Susan Collins, ask them to light up the phones and do it every day to let them know that we are watching and that we are going to hold them accountable in November. I will be clear and say that we will most likely not be successful. McConnell got his trial with no new witnesses and documents, and it remains extremely unlikely that there would ever be enough senators to convict. But remember, we knew this going in, right? We have never been able to rely on impeachment and removal. We have never been able to rely on the Mueller report. The one and only way that we get rid of Trump and the GOP is to do the work in 2020. We organize, we canvass, we make calls, we do what it takes to win, and that we win with margins that are unquestionable. The one thing that McConnell and the GOP understand is power. And so we have to take the power back. And I believe in my bones that in November of 2020, we will. And that is it for this week's show. You can find links to everything we talked about at indivisiblepodcast.org. To get in touch, email us at indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Our associate producer is Charlotte Gittleman. Thank you again to David Domke, Tay Phoenix, and Tina Eck. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.